baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. We're happy you're joining us once again for KCBS In-Depth. I'm Jane McMillan. Last week, you might remember, we had the first part of my conversation with Dr. David Eagleman, neuroscientist and adjunct professor at the Stanford School of Medicine, a best-selling author of several books on the brain, including the companion book to his international PBS series, The Brain, The Story of You. So for a little review before we begin part two, Here's how Dr. Eagleman puts it in a nutshell. You know, the discovery of the last uh, 100 years, and especially the last several decades, has been that we, we are our brains. So we understand when you, let's say, damage your brain, a little tumor, a little stroke, things like that, that fundamentally changes who you are. Whereas if you damage some other little part of your body, like your pinky, you're sad about it, but you're no different as a person. And so what all of the clinical literature put together has told us is that you are these three pounds of tissue. This is where the um, you know, your hopes and your dreams and your aspirations, the agony, the ecstasy, it's all taking place right, right there. And when that changes, you change. So understanding this and how we've developed as a species can help us figure out why we do and feel the things that we do, why we have to work now at consciously overriding our brain's tendency to judgment and to tribalism and to not understanding the other. Dr. Eagleman ran a pretty interesting experiment on this. He says it's all about what we consider our in-groups and our out-groups. So we actually just did a study in my lab where we put people in the scanner and they see six hands on a screen. And one of the hands gets selected by the computer at random. And then you see that hand get stabbed by a syringe needle. We're measuring your empathy response because what happens when you see the hand get stabbed Areas in your brain come online that are involved in pain, pain normally that, that you would have, but, but now it's not your hand getting stabbed. Nonetheless, these areas come online, um, and so this is, this is the basis of empathy. But now what we do is we assign each of the six hands a one-word label, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, atheist, Scientologist, Hindu. And now you see a hand doo -doo -doo, get selected and then stabbed. And the question is, does your brain care as much if it's a member of your outgroup? And the answer is, your brain does not care as much. Um, there's less of an empathic response. And this is, of course, true across all the groups. It's even true of atheists, by the way. Atheists care more about seeing the atheist hand get stabbed than they do about other hands. And so it's not. this isn't even an indictment of religion. It's just which group you belong to. It's, it's just whatever you consider your in-group, you care a lot about and you care a little bit less about the out-groups. So better understanding our brains, Dr. Eagleman says, can mean a more productive and a more just world. 
He's also putting that knowledge to work in the realm of criminal justice. He heads the Center for Science and Law, a national nonprofit working to better our criminal justice and correction system by understanding brain damage and illness in crime and in proper rehabilitation. What we're trying to do is figure out how we can solve that by taking a more realistic view of the brain, which is to say brains are all really different from one another. People commit crimes for different reason. And so can we get a more refined system that instead of saying, okay, you committed this, you're going to go to jail for five years, instead says, okay, look, you committed this crime, you're going to get some sort of punishment for this, but we're going to tailor the sentencing. You know, if, if you're a judge and you have a bunch of people standing in front of the bench, all of whom have committed exactly the same crime, but this guy over here has schizophrenia, this guy here is a psychopath, this guy here is tweaked out on drugs, this guy here comes from a very impoverished neighborhood, and so on and so on. These call for very different routes through the legal system. You figure out what are the rehabilitative strategies. So the more we know about ourselves, our brains, the better world we can create. That's his message. He's a favorite at TED Talks. And Dr. Eagleman recently presented some of his research at the Minimally Invasive Surgery Week conference here in San Francisco. He's also got four startups involving the latest in brain research and technology, including an app to test for brain concussions right on the sidelines of a game or the scene of an accident. And as we continue now with part two of my conversation with Dr. Eagleman, you'll hear about a torso vest he's invented for sending information to the brain. So this portion of my discussion with Dr. David Eagleman is all about the human ability to innovate. And that's the topic of his latest book with Anthony Brandt, The Runaway Species, How Human Creativity Remakes the World. Dr. Eagleman, thanks for sticking around and uh, talking with us some more. Your latest book talks about creativity and the drive for innovation and beauty. And so what in us, different people have innate gifts. I'm thinking art or music or um, you're an author and you're a scientist. So we have these things in us that, that push to come out. But what what is the human drive to do something, to experience something or to discover something, even if we don't have some innate talent that's just dying to get out of us? Well, here's what I'd say. First of all, a question that I've been wondering about for a long time, just as a scientist, is when you look around at all the species of animals on the planet, we're the only ones that build civilizations around us. I mean, you know, ants. why don't, why don't, <laughs> well, no, but that's not, I mean, why don't ants build the internet or why exactly. don't they get to the yeah. moon and build, or why don't they have, uh, you know, dance performances or wh- whatever? The, the question is, why are we the only ones doing whatever, however you, you know, think about creativity around us. I mean, look, we're sitting in a radio studio and we are surrounded by machines. I've got my cell phone here and I've got a, a coffee mug and I've got sunglasses and I've got a, a microphone here. I mean, ants don't have any of this stuff. And the question is why? So um, the interesting part is when you look at the human brain, it's very similar to other mammalian brains. It's not it's not so different. Um, but it turns out it's the, the argument that, that we make in the book. I wrote this with a friend of mine, Tony Brandt, who's a music composer. Um, when you look at the human brain, there are sort of two main differences. One is that in between input and output, between the senses coming in and the motor output going out, um, 
what we have is this massive expansion of territory in between. So, in other words, we don't just act reflexively with things. It's not, it's not like we have some input and we always do the same thing. But instead, we've got all this territory where ideas, essentially, can get mashed up and, and combined in different ways. And then what we have as part of that expansion of the cortex is this massive part right behind the forehead called the prefrontal cortex, which is the thing that unhooks us from the here and now and allows us to simulate what ifs. Okay, so what if I put this with that? What if I do this? What if I... And so we're constantly what ifing, you know, about mundane things like what am I going to eat for dinner tonight? What if I'd said this to my wife? What if I did this? Blah, blah, blah. But, you know, also with more extraordinary things, uh, we're always doing that. So it turns out it's not just a, what, what we think of as human creativity isn't just about people with innate gifts and extraordinary talents. But this is what all brains do. This is the standard operating equipment of brains is to mash up ideas, to take all this input in from a lifetime, mash it up constantly, bending ideas breaking ideas, blending ideas, and simulating possible futures. What if I did this? What if I did that? And so this is what the the, the human basis of creativity is and what it's what it's allowed us to have is this whole world around us. I mean if you look at a if you go to a forest and look around, the species there, it looks exactly like it did a million years ago there. But you go into San Francisco and you think, my gosh, every place looks like a motherboard where where humans touch. Um, so uh, yeah, we're just we're extraordinarily good as a species at coming up with possible futures and then and then implementing them. Are you a, a believer in the power of mindfulness or meditation to kind of uh, harness the power of that that middle space, that real estate that's available to us? I mean, that's that's become a big. I mean, it's it's you know millennia old. But all of a sudden, Harvard Business School is talking about it, and it's being taught in schools to elementary school kids. And what's yeah. your perception of that? Uh, I'm I'm totally for it. I don't, um, you know, I know that really busy people. I'm 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 one of them, and it turns out that all my friends tell me I should do meditation and so on. And I'm <laughs> I've always meant to, but I'm just too busy to do it. But you know, I'd like to think I get some things done in a day, and I'm creative. And so uh, I don't know that it is. A necessity. What I do think is necessary, though, is something quite similar to that, or maybe what meditation would be a subset of, which is, you know, one thing is that all ideas come from other ideas that you've taken in. So it's not like, yeah, you know, as much as we like to think about creativity as being a bolt of lightning out of the blue, and so it's it's not that. It's actually putting together ideas that we've had before. So part of the important thing is to go out and eat the world, to go out and get all the experience you can and see different things, different ideas, and so on. This is really critical. And the other half of that is to sort of digest it. So to make sure that you have windows of time where you can sort of not be distracted by every tweet that comes in and every email, but you just have time to let that stuff uh you know, metabolize. And, and that's, uh, I think meditation is probably really good for that. But there are other ways too. For example, I go to IHOP and I, that's where I get all my writing done. Why? Because there's nothing to do at IHOP and there's nothing interesting to look at. And so I get lots of stuff done and I have my internet off. So. Okay. Good advice. We know where to find you on the peninsula. We'll, we'll pick an IHOP. Uh, what else are you looking to uncover, discover about the brain next? I mean, obviously it's probably like the ocean, uh, and and there's so much more to know. But what's your next thing? Well, I tell you, I I uh, spun off a company called Neosensory, and what I'm very interested in is whether we can create new senses for humans. Very briefly, it's just that the brain is locked in silence and darkness inside the skull, and 
all it ever sees are these um, spikes, these electrochemical signals of neurons chattering along. And and that's all it ever sees. So, so even though you think I'm sitting over here and you're looking at me and so on, you're not you're not actually all this is happening inside your head and same with the hearing and so on that's all happening inside your head um in in silence and darkness it's very weird but but true so um um what i started wondering about years ago was could you feed information into the brain via unusual sensory channels and have the brain come to perceive it in other words let me do this a different way which is that i've years ago i started thinking about the eyes and the nose and the mouth and the ears and the fingertips as being just peripheral plug and play you know sensors that you could just plug in and do things with so so what i ended up building in my lab was a, a vest that's covered with vibratory motors. So like the little buzzer on your cell phone, it's got 32 of these on it. And we can translate any kind of information into patterns of vibration on your torso. So we can do many things with this, but as one example, um, we can we can cure deafness. So people who are deaf, completely deaf, can come to understand the world this way because we capture audio and we turn it into patterns of vibration on the skin. And, uh, and that information gets up to a deaf person's brain, and they come to understand it exactly as they would information from the ear, which, of course, isn't just piping sound into the brain. All the ear is doing is, is breaking things into different frequencies and sending that along different cables to the brain. And so this is the same thing. You have these, uh, these fibers going up from the torso into how, the brain. How would the person perceive that would it would it be almost like here would it be like physically hearing you know what the weird part is we'll never know so the answer is maybe or maybe it'll feel different we'll actually never know because you don't know that what i think of as hearing is the same as what you think of as hearing right or what i see as red is the same as what you see as red this is the totally bizarre thing all that matters is if my mother taught me to call this red and yours taught you to call this red then we can transact and negotiate in the outside world between us i can say hey pass the red thing and you pass it over um it's the same thing with this deaf people come to be able to understand the language of the vest but um we uh you know we don't know what that internal experience is like and maybe we never will but what i'm interested in is what other kinds of things can we feed into the um, into the vest? Could we feed Twitter data or stock market data or weather data? Could you have com- a, a completely new kind of sense? So this is... Um, Instead of just visual reading it visually or, or yeah, listening to it or... Exactly. I, I mean, many things... Absorb it. So, so vision is great for certain things, but it's really lousy at taking in high dimensional information. So it's good at taking in lines and blobs and movement and things like that, but it's really terrible if you wanted to take in... 32 stock prices at the same time. You'd have to stare at each graph one at a time and really think about it. Um, but you can feel that as a pattern on your body and have this high dimensional input. And of course, the body's really good at this. This is why you can stand on one foot and balance because every muscle that's taking care of that is all talking to your brain at the same time. And your brain is perfectly fine at coordinating all that very high dimensional input at once. But what about volumes of one-dimensional input? Like as you said, having, you know, fifty-two stocks coming into your brain at the same time. Yeah. So this is the thing. The brain's really good at this. Let me give a different example, which is if you look at a modern airplane cockpit, it's unbelievably full of gauges and knobs and graphs and whatever. And and so what happens when a pilot sits in there? He has to stare at one thing, and then he shifts his attention and stares at the next thing, and then shifts his attention and stares at the next thing, and so on. 
because you can't possibly stare at a cockpit and take it all in at once. But you can, as a pilot, wear one of our vests and feel the state of the air of the airplane as a systemic exactly. thing all at the same time. Exactly, you. because you're feeling the pattern. What the brain is really good at doing is understanding patterns and extracting meaning out of those. And so that's what that's what we're able to do with the vest in the same way that you're able to hear a language with the vest, you can hear all kinds of other information with the vest. And by the way, uh, the, the vest is going to appear on, on Westworld. Uh, I'm the scientific advisor for Westworld, and, and the vest is going to be uh, part of season two in there. That is something. Well, I want to know when the rest of us can get a hold of one. Yes, it's going to be it's going to be over a year. So we started this company, but hardware, it turns out, is very slow. So um, we're working. We've got a whole giant team, and we're working as fast as we can and getting off to the manufacturers. We've also made a wristband, uh, which is essentially a smaller version of the vest. This one that I'm wearing right now listens to the world and um, breaks it up into different frequencies. And so for deaf people, they can wear this wristband. It's called the Buzz. And they suddenly are aware of what's happening. If there's a knock on the door, or their baby is laughing, or their wife comes in the room, or whatever, they, you know, they they hear the sounds on the vest, and they, uh, sorry, on the on the wristband, and they can then respond to them. So the first, the very first person who tried this was just a couple of weeks ago, and he cried when he when he put it on. That is phenomenal. Yeah. We're continuing our discussion on the brain with Dr. David Eagleman, neuroscientist, adjunct professor at the Stanford School of Medicine, best-selling author, and the host and creator of the international PBS series, The Brain, The Story of You. I'm Jane McMillan. We're talking about the human ability for creativity, innovation, and gaining knowledge. So really, our brains are capable of so much more, is what you're saying, How, um, but it's, right. our, it's our input uh, limits right now. It's kind of like a governor on a on the accelerator of a car. Exactly. So we have other ways to absorb physical information. Exactly. I, so I, I have a hypothesis. I presented this in a TED talk um, called "Can We Create New Senses for Humans?" Um, but my hypothesis is that, yeah, you know, eyes and ears and nose and mouth and also this is what we've inherited from a long, complicated road of evolution. But it's just not what we have to stick with as far as channels into the brain. And, and in particular, my hypothesis is that there's, we don't even know the limits to how much more information we could get in there. The brain is extraordinarily good. It's essentially like an all-purpose computing device. And whatever kind of data you feed in, it just figures out how it can do something with that. So I think the sky is the limit. How does that work with our, other, uh, with our intuition? With senses that aren't touch, feel, smell, that aren't necessarily physical, but that are part of our mind and our brain and our... That is actually built on top of your sensory information. So what you take to be an intuition, if you know somebody walks in the room and you think, wow, there's something funny about that guy that I don't trust or whatever, that's actually using your sensory information. It's just doing computations under the hood where you don't necessarily have access to the details, but nonetheless, you're doing pattern recognition. But it's still, it still is just the case that these senses that we have, those are our only portals onto the outside world. What about developments of something that could help us better, I think the word you used was metabolize, that information, the, the uh, intuition information? The thing is that, you know, emotions and intuitions is also neural computation. It's, it's also you, you're collecting information from the world, and as you get better and better over time at recognizing patterns, you have these senses of things. Like, you know, your, your emotions might tell you, 
oh, this is a good place to be, or this is a bad place to be, and I should get out of here. And so you can have all these sorts of feelings. There's nothing magical about it. It's just neural computation, but it's sort of a, a wider angle lens. It's telling you what, you know, your brain is doing computation. It's telling you what you need to do at this moment, instead of when you're playing a chess game and you're looking at something very detailed, um, you know, intuition is giving you the, the bigger story. You wrote the book Some, which was a, a, a fiction, but this, it brings this in, and it's all about different vignettes of afterlives and greater beings, and, and you have all these different, really fascinating scenarios. In terms of our, our brain function and what makes us us, what about that information from what humans might consider a higher power? Um, so, of course, I should specify just for the audience that, that it's a book of literary fiction. And so I wrote 40 stories yeah. that were all mutually exclusive um, uh, about, you know, essentially our, our lives. And I found, I found this, this conceit of the afterlife to be a really funny and interesting way to illustrate what is important to us. Um, you know, as far as issues about greater beings and so on, um, yeah, we just can't know. I mean, I think we know plenty enough. We know enough to know that any particular religious story is not supported by that. I mean, there's just not enough. There's just not enough there for them to be true. On the flip side, we don't know enough to 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 pretend that we know it all and say, oh yeah, we've got the whole cosmos figured out. It's all wrapped up. It's all done. Um, so my position has always been. Um, what I call possibilianism, which is to say, understanding the structure of the possibility space. What do we have? Instead of fighting and dying for a particular story, what is the structure of what is possible in between? And we can use the tools of science to shape that space and to rule certain things out, and also to open up new folds in that possibility space that we hadn't even considered before. But I'm, I'm also asking, though, about the the collection of uh, information of say the greater knowledge out there, their beliefs that they're that we're all part of a of a greater collection of knowledge that exists in the universe. I mean, I'd have to say there's just there's there's no evidence one way or the other, you know, for or against it uh, about the, this the, this other kind of greater knowledge. And so the problem is, um... is that something that fascinates you though? I mean, after you wrote that, after you wrote some. Uh, and you're a scientist, but you're obviously looking at these uh, scenarios in a, in a fictitious way. But still, um, how we process knowledge, well, not whether there is that out there or that isn't, but how we, in our brains and our minds, take in that possibility or our own religious stories or our own faith stories and then metabolize that and make decisions or how that helps shape the way our brain makes decisions. Yeah, I mean, one thing I'm very interested in is the way that the culture you grow up in shapes your decisions in ways that are typically invisible to us. But obviously, you as a you know, 21st century American are going to make very different sorts of decisions than if you were 17th century Japanese or you know, 1st century Roman or whatever. Your, your world is different, predicated on your particular beliefs that you absorb from your parents telling you, Whatever, whatever fairy tales they told you and, um, you know, whatever religious context you grew up in and so on. I, I am completely fascinated by how this shapes the way that we all make decisions, obviously, again, in ways that we typically can't even see. 
And this is why I think it's so important when we raise children to make sure that they are worldly, that they see other cultures and communities and so on, just so it can sharpen their focus on what is their own fishbowl that they're growing up in. I mean, just so it can really make it clear to them what are the stories that they're absorbing that don't have to be true, because this person on the other side of the planet has a different story. Well, that's the question. What is it in our brains that that push us to want to be right in comparison to another human? When we could all be okay with what our own set of information and our own set of experiences tell us, but what is it about us as humans that we're not that satisfied unless we can make sure somebody else agrees with us? Is that yeah. a brain thing? Is that this? Is that just a culture thing? No, it's a brain thing. It's um, you know some people have made the argument that the the reason humans became so good at things like language is just in order to be able to prove themselves right, uh, you know, and and beat their neighbors not only in contests of strength but in contests of the intellect. But but yeah, it's you know you can tell from an evolutionary psychology point of view that for whatever reason it is something we value so much to be right. And to have the other person be wrong. And, um, yeah, this is something we're just, we're really yoked with as part of our psychology. And, you know, sometimes it's useful. I mean, sometimes there are big scientific fights and then what comes out of it is, uh, you know, a, a great piece of truth and, you know, a new instrument like a microscope or whatever. It is. But, um, yeah, but often it's just a pain in the butt and it makes, makes relationships hard um, because everyone wants so badly to believe that they're right all the time. So, uh, good news in general for the uh, human uh, development of uh, the further development of humanity, or um, have we kind of hit a wall because of these needs? Oh, no, I think, I mean, I think we're just on the precipice of major changes as far as our species goes. And and in part, it's because of what we're doing um, right now in terms of you know, adding new senses to people. I mean, there's a sense in which we've already got it. So we're all walking around with a rectangle in our pockets that has the entirety of humankind's knowledge. And that changes things enormously already. But but what I'm interested in is how can we feed information into the brain so we're seeing in the, you know, infrared or ultraviolet range or gamma ray or, or microwave range, how are we, what happens when we really start expanding our senses or we're hearing in the ultrasonic range or where we're experiencing the whole world because I'm tapped into Twitter and I'm, you know, things that are trending to the top, I'm sort of becoming aware of those um, on the fly without even having to look. Um, Does that make us more human, though, or less? It makes us different. It makes it so that what we call human is something that we have been used to, but I think in 100 years or 500 years, we're going to be so fundamentally different as a species that we might not even be recognizable. And our, our great-great-great-grandchildren might really have very little understanding of who we were and why in our very limited little lives with our limited little senses, we cared about the things that we cared about. I'm pretty much speechless now, so I'm going to just thank you so much for your your expertise and your insight and uh, all the possibilities, Dr. David Eagleman. Thanks so much. Thank you. It's great, great to be here. Dr. David Eagleman, a neuroscientist, adjunct professor at Stanford School of Medicine, best-selling author of several books on the brain, also the head of the Center for Science and Law. I hope you've enjoyed our conversations with Dr. Eagleman. I'm Jane McMillan. 
You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program, Sundays at 8.30 a.m. and 8.30 p.m. And now available for download at kcbs.com. For all news, 740 and FM 106.9, KCBS. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app.